0: and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. It's uh, good to see you all this morning. Um, My wife, Elsie, and our granddaughters voted that of all the ties I had, this was the ugliest one I had left. Can you look at this and listen at the same time? Okay, all right. We're in a series called Love Thy Neighbor, and this morning we're going to take a look at one of the neighbors of the New Testament that I think has a lot of great things to teach us. It has been said that a father carries pictures where his money used to be. So how did this day, Father's Day, actually start? Well, you might recognize the name of Anna Jarvis as the creator of Mother's Day. Back in 1908, 110 years ago, uh, she's the one that created Mother's Day. And it became an official American holiday in 1914. But what about Father's Day? Well, another lady in 1909, Sonora Dodd was her name, set about to honor her father, William Jackson Smart, a widowed Civil War veteran who was left to raise his six children alone when his wife died in childbirth of their sixth. Within a few months, Sonora had convinced the Spokane, Washington Ministerial Association to set aside a Sunday in June to celebrate fathers. She proposed June 5th, her father's birthday. But as I understood it, the ministers in that area chose the third Sunday of June so that they would have more time to prepare for the Father's Day sermon after their Mother's Day sermon. Now, you know, really, guys? You can't get another sermon ready? I really think probably, even though history records it like I told you, they were trying to stretch things out because there's always good things to be able to celebrate in the life of the church. I found it interesting that Father's Day did not become a national holiday until 1972. just takes us guys a little bit longer to get things accomplished. But things are not always what they seem to be. Did you know that by 1920, Anna Jarvis, the mother of Mother's Day, who was never a mother herself, became so frustrated with the commercialization of Mother's Day that she spent the rest of her life trying to get it off the calendars. Things are not always what they seem to be. And that truth is never more apparent than in the dark, dank cell of a jail in Philippi about midnight a long time ago. Let me see if I can set the stage for our story this morning that comes out of Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul heads out on his second missionary journey and takes along with him his uh, partner and cohort, a man by the name of Silas. They are to meet up with Timothy and Dr. Luke in the city of Troas, where they were going to turn and go north into Bithynia, but when they reach Troas, Paul has a dream, and it's a man in the dream from Macedonia, Greece, who is saying, come over and help us. Paul recognizes it more than just a dream, it's a vision, and so they change the course of their direction. They head across the Aegean Sea, and the first, the first European city to hear the gospel is the city of Philippi. A city of about 10,000 people. Greek in culture, Roman under, uh, as in citizenship. So on that Saturday that they entered the city... The Apostle Paul finds a group of God-seeking women meeting by the river in worship. He shared the story of Jesus with them, and Lydia, a businesswoman, a seller of purple cloth, is the very first convert to Jesus Christ in the city of Philippi, and the church has its roots. She and her family were baptized that afternoon. And I can only imagine the joy that Paul is feeling having listened to the vision and crossed over into Europe. Then Paul's joy takes an unexpected turn. Almost immediately, there was a spiritual attack. Now, let me pause here and just bring it a point. I've seen this hundreds of times in my years of ministry. That when somebody has a spiritual high watermark, and they're, they're, they're on a, they've, they've had a spiritual mountaintop experience. They've had some kind of great spiritual victory in their life. Maybe it was right after their own baptism. Satan pulls out all the stops and tries to discourage us. He places failure and discouragement and disheartening stuff in front of us. And people often find themselves with a very difficult moment a spiritual test the bottom just drops out of life and you think i've just gone from the highs to the lows when that happens after a spiritually important moment in your life know this the enemy is after you because if he can cause you to give up you see that spiritual victory is wasted don't let that happen to you paul didn't let that happen to him but here's what was happening There was a a, a woman, a young lady, as a matter of fact, who was possessed of a demon who was constantly stalking Paul and Silas as they walked the streets of Philippi. And her constant disruptions in an effort to compromise the impact of the gospel finally got to Paul. Paul had it up to here with everything that she was doing. I love the fact that Paul had a limit to his patience. That Paul could get to a point, and so Paul just turns around to her, casts the demon out of her, and they start on their way. Well, now that was good news for the woman. She'd been possessed of a demon, but it wasn't good news for the men who owned her, who had a thriving business because of her fortune-telling and her soothsaying, and all the other things that she did was now gone. She couldn't do anything. And so they haul Paul and Silas before the city officials, the magistrates, and they spell out their story, and the magistrates... Order them to be flogged, beaten to within an inch of their life, and then they were thrown into jail. And not just any part of the jail, into the inner cell of the jail. And so here's Paul. Inside. Great spiritual victory. The church has its first convert, and now they're in jail as a result of what's happening in Philippi. I think I know how that would have affected me. I think I would have had a really lousy attitude. Here I am. I have abandoned my original plans to follow a divine vision. At least I thought it was a divine vision. And as a result, I've been beaten, bruised, and tossed into prison. I am not a happy camper. I would have been lousy company in that cell, licking my wounds, and grouching to God about how unfair life really is. Here I am trying to serve your Lord, and this is how I get rewarded. Anybody else think you would have felt that way? Probably. Probably. You know how Paul and Silas reacted? They sang. They sang. And I suspect they must have had pretty good voices because the story has a very positive ending. And while Acts does not give us the layout of the jail, I have, this in, I have this picture in my mind that the inner cell becomes like a megaphone to all the other cells, that it's within earshot of all the other cells as they sang. Paul has a captive audience in jail. So in between the songs, when they were looking for the next key or the next words, guess what Paul did with a captive audience? What any good preacher would do? He preached, of course. And when he needed to take a breath, Silas would jump in on the theme. This was tag team preaching at its best. And clocks hadn't been invented yet, and so no one would have been expecting a 30-minute sermon. Now, I'm not... I'm not suggesting that Paul was long-winded, but he's still going at midnight. And the Bible says the jailer is asleep. I love that. I take such great encouragement that the jailer slept through Paul's sermon. And that's when it happened. That's when it happened an earthquake. A divine earthquake rattled the jail and released the chains from all the prisoners. The doors fly open. The the jailer wakes up and he sees what's happened. He pulls his sword and is ready to take his own life because you see a, a Roman jailer is responsible for the charges under his care the incarcerated charges and if his prisoners had escaped his life would have been taken anyway so rather than go through a trial he was just going to take his own life but Paul seeing what's about to happen calls out reassures the man don't do yourself any harm we are all here now there were other prisoners in the jail not just Paul and Silas because the Bible says the other prisoners were listening to what Paul and Silas had to say and what they sang And so the jailer, just utterly amazed at what an unexpected turn of events, calls for a torch, and he comes in, and trembling, he falls down before Paul and Silas and asks the most important question of his life. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You will never ask a more important question in all of your life. You say, well, how, how much does a person have to know? I mean, it's just, this guy's a pagan. He doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ. Uh, how much does a person have to know to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Some people would say, oh, it's a complex and profound story with so many celestial twists and turns. One must understand the cataclysmic and cosmological battle between righteousness and wicked licentiousness that prompted the sovereign divine incarnation and terrestrial visit of Emmanuel so that those who are spiritually suffocating in their trespasses and spiritual infractions might find justification and ultimately sanctification through the propitiating martyrdom of Jesus Christ in hope of his maranathical return. (laughs) Now that's what people are afraid you have to know you don't it's this simple I'm guilty of breaking God's law but God loved me enough to send his son to suffer in my place and pay the price of my salvation and by his resurrection I have hope of everlasting life that's it could they have picked that up in the hours of that evening oh the, the jailer would have heard that over and over in song and in word. He would have known enough, far more probably than what he needed to make this choice. Oh, you can explore it in greater depths. You can use big words if you want to. But the bottom line, bottom line, I'm lost without him. So are you. This was Paul's response Then to the man who came in, the jailer, trembling before him. Are you ready for this? Acts 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. I love that story. Isn't that awesome? The jailer takes them out. He and his family, they don't, wait till, they don't wait till morning to be baptized. They don't even eat before they're baptized. They are so excited about this good news. They go that same hour of the night and are baptized. And the church suddenly now has two families as a foundation to build on. And that's where we usually end the story. Ah, the great victory. But the story doesn't end there. The story goes on. Paul and Silas go back to jail. The jailer was not allowed to keep them out. That was not his job. He had to enforce the law. So back to the jail they go. What happens next is awesome. The following morning, the city magistrates return to the jail, and in a magnanimous gesture, (laughs) they offer to let Paul and Silas go. All's well that ends well. You've probably learned your lesson. But Paul, verse 37 Ready for this? Let's just look at Acts 16, verse 37. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and they, when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and to escort them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, the first convert, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Oh, boy. I love the fact that Paul does not let this slide. An injustice had been done, and he wasn't going to let the city officers get off the hook. Many today believe that Christians ought to just bandage up their wounds, keep their mouth shut, and go on their way. Don't make a fuss. Just forgive and let it go. Well, of course we forgive. That's a part of what Scripture says. But nothing in Scripture ever indicates that being a Christian means that you are a doormat for the rest of the world. Paul possessed great strength of character. and injustice had been done, and he was going to see it corrected. So he stood up to these men who were technically committing a crime because... You don't treat Roman citizens that way. You give them a trial and you go through the process. As a matter of fact, these guys are scared because if it gets back to Rome that they had done this, they're going to get the same punishment, if not worse, than what they gave to Paul and Silas. And you say, okay, okay. Why didn't Paul say something before they got flogged in the first place? Why didn't he say, hey, we're Roman citizens. You can't do this. Good question. I think Paul had a plan. I think Paul knew what was going to happen and how it could advance the gospel. Now, now, folks, I'm just telling you. I'm speculating here. I'm reading between the lines because it's not said. But I think that when Paul met the magistrates and they come to escort him out kindly, graciously, I think Paul made a deal with them. I think Paul said, "Don't bother the church, Lydia and the jailer and their families and others now." The church will be good for this community. Give them a chance. Encourage them. Keep your hands off the church. If you don't, I'm going to come back and press charges. It's possible, isn't it? And I base that somewhat on what Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Of all the New Testament letters, folks, the book of Philippians is the most filled with joy and the most positive letter that we have. And it begins like this. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, when when Paul usually writes a letter, he introduces himself as an apostle, stating an authoritative position because he's going to deal with issues, but not to the Philippians. Listen to what it says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints... In Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. Is that not a beautiful introduction? And Paul says, I'm a servant. Not an apostle, I'm a servant. And this word is not servant, it is bond slave. This means he is sold out to Jesus Christ, lock, stock, and barrel. I belong to him. And so is saying, I'm one of you. And this marvelous church, this church at Philippi, was probably the most positive church of all the letters that we have in the New Testament. And I think Paul set the stage for that in the way he left the city. Well, what can we learn in the the short time we have left before God sends an earthquake to let you know that it's time to wake up and leave the church? Okay, three things quickly. Number one, anchor yourself to joy. Anchor yourself to joy. We never know from day to day what will happen in life. I doubt that Paul and Silas figured their first day in Philippi, they'd be in jail. I doubt that the jailer went to work that morning and decided by the time his shift was over, he was going to be ready to take his own life. I doubt that he thought that. We have no idea what we'll face in the days ahead. We have no idea what we'll face the rest of this day. But if you anchor yourself to joy in Jesus Christ, you'll make it you'll survive. I mean, how else could Paul and Silas sing in prison? Their joy in Christ was greater than their fear of the circumstances and the men around them. The joy didn't take away the pain of the flogging. It didn't improve the conditions of the jail. It didn't, it didn't make the stocks fit more loosely around their ankles and wrists so as not to blister their arms and legs. It did, however, transform their attitudes and their spirits. In camp, we used to sing this song. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Great song, easy to sing in camp when you're around friends. But when you're headed to the clinic to get the results of the tests for which you are really skeptical, or you're waving goodbye to your son and daughters as they board the plane to head to the combat zone, they're deployed for a several-month tour, or you're headed to the funeral home to plan the service For your lifelong spouse the first song that comes to your mind is not I've got the joy 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 down in my heart and yet I will tell you that it is our joy in Christ that will get us through every one of those circumstances and more Oswald Chambers wrote this he said the Bible nowhere speaks about a happy Christian it talks plentifully of joy happiness depends on things that happen and may sometimes be an insult. Joyfulness is never touched by external conditions, and a joyful heart is never an insult. What will impact your neighbor most is seeing your joy in the jailhouse moments of life. Did you notice what Acts 16 says about the jailer? It says he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. That's a lasting joy that will sustain you until the day you draw your last breath. So anchor yourself to joy. Second all, seize the moment. Seize the opportunity. Ed saw his wife fixing breakfast and seized the moment. He sat down at the kitchen table and suddenly yelled, careful! She jumped and said, Ed, what? What? He said, you just need to be careful. You're cooking a lot of eggs there. She rolled her eyes. Then Ed said, you better watch it or they're going to stick. They'll stick to the pan. She shot him a frown Then went back to the stove. Then he shouted in a panicky voice, salt the eggs, salt the eggs, salt the eggs. You never salt the eggs. His wife put down the spatula, turned to him and she said, Ed, what in the world is wrong with you? And Ed calmly replied. I just want you to know what it feels like when we're in the car together and I'm driving. (laughs) And it seized the moment. And he was sorry for it later, I'm pretty sure. That's not seizing the moment like I'm talking about. I'm inspired by the fact that when Paul and Silas found themselves in the inner cell, they used it as a megaphone for their praises. They seized the opportunity to make a difference. Now, I would imagine this is the first time the Philippian jailers ever heard singing in the jail. Who sings once they've been beaten to a pulp? But you see, that's what caught everybody's attention. Every other person in the jail is feeling sorry for himself. Paul and Silas in thinking, how can I use this moment to make a difference for Jesus Christ? And that's the question that we ask when we think about loving our neighbors. What is it that I can do? What moment is it that I can seize to make a difference in my neighbor's life? Most of us, unfortunately, end up spending our lives in a rut. I heard it years ago, folks. It has stuck with me all through my life. A rut is merely a grave with both ends knocked out. (laughs) A lot of truth to that. And it takes no thought or effort to become rut-bound, or as one anonymous sage put it, it's easy to mistake the edge of the rut for the horizon. It's not the horizon. A national survey recently found that 69%, nearly three-quarters of Americans, eat the same five dinners. Every, five five nights every week. eat this every week. What's true of our meal habits can also be true of our spiritual habits. We can really get into a rut. Apathy is not a spiritual virtue. God calls us to seize the moment. Elmer Towns writes, he said, some people succeed because they are destined to, but most people succeed because they are determined. Seize the moment. Be determined that you're going to make a difference in this world. No one suggested that Chuck was destined to be a success, but all would agree that he was determined. His grades were poor. His artistic skills uh, for the Saint Paul submitted to the Saint Paul High School yearbook were rejected. His formal art training came through a correspondence school, where at best his best grade was a C in a correspondence school. Following his service in World War II, Chuck up, took up drawing again. His cartoon canine was fashioned after his own childhood dog, Spike, but nobody wanted his comics. I mean, he had a comic strip proposal. He named it Lil Folks, but nobody would take it. Determined, Chuck kept after it, kept after it. Finally, after countless rejections, United Feature Syndicate bought the comic and renamed it. They didn't like the name Lil Folks, so they renamed it Peanuts. And Chuck... Charles Schultz, who never liked that name, went down in history. At the time of his death in the year 2000, the Peanuts comic strip appeared in 2,600 newspapers daily. And the books that he published were published by determined publications. Don't wait for destiny. You just be determined. Seize the moment. Make a lasting impact. for Jesus Christ on your neighbors last thing quickly lead your family this is mostly to us men this morning but all of you can listen in because it's valuable this is about parenting for just a moment we never discovered this father's name he remains throughout history the Philippian jailer But like Paul and Silas, he's a hero in our story because he leads his family by word and example. He took great interest in those under his fatherly care, and he gave them the best gift he could ever give them, faith in Jesus Christ. My dad has given me a lot of wonderful gifts throughout my lifetime, but a nurturing faith in Jesus Christ has been by far his greatest gift to me. And it's the one that I want to keep passing on to my daughters and my sons-in-law and my Grandchildren. If they can only, if they can only glean one thing from my life, let it be faith in Jesus Christ. Dads, this is our most important role because you see loving my neighbor begins with those under my roof. The joy we exude, the words that we use, the attitudes we demonstrate, the helping hand we offer, the laughter we share, the tears we shed, the prayers we pray, and the God we serve are the best gifts we have to give our children, to lead our families closer to him. Before her death, author Irma Bombeck wrote about parenting, and she did it in this oh-so-beautiful way. Quote, I see children as kites, You spend a lifetime trying to get them off the ground. You run with them until you're both breathless. They crash and you add a longer tail. They hit the rooftop. You pluck them out of the spout. You patch and comfort, adjust and teach. You watch them lifted up by the wind and assure them that someday, someday, they'll fly. Finally, they're airborne. But they need more. They need more string, and you keep letting it out. And with each twist of the ball of twine, there is a sadness that goes with the joy because the kite becomes more distant, and somehow you know that it won't be long before that beautiful creature will snap the lifeline that bound the two of you together and soar as it was meant to soar, free and alone. Only then do you know that you did your job. Men, give your family spiritual wings so they can soar for Jesus Christ. Anchor yourself to joy. Seize every moment for the Savior. Lead your family faithfully. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past 6 years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.